Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. You may be listening to this episode through a post on the website of our friends, uh, Ajem Media Collective, ajemmc.com. It's a great new initiative started by students and uh, freelance journalists. Um, a website dedicated to Persian at high and low culture for our Ottoman history podcast followers. I recommend you all to check out that website, and we're very happy to be collaborating with this new project. Our guest today uh, is Dr. Sorar Sadarian. She is a Rice Fellow Lecturer at the Council on Middle East Studies at Yale University, where we're recording today. Uh, Dr. Sadarian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, this is a really one of our first episodes dealing directly with the history of uh, Iran or the broader Persianate world, although we touch on it from time to time. And I think it's a great topic to start with. Our, our topic is non-Muslims and the Iranian parliament, 1906 to 1911. Um, for people who are familiar with the history of the late Ottoman Empire, the, the constitutional revolution of 1908, 1908 and the, the parliament uh, that followed is a really important and well-studied event in the transformation of politics and identity nationality, and all of these subjects in the modern Middle East. So, you know, for our Ottomanist listeners, I think this discussion about Iran experiencing a very similar process in the exact same time uh, will be very enlightening. Dr. Sadegian's doctoral research completed at uh, Sorbonne Nouvelle Paris 3, that's Paris 3 for our Anglophone speakers, um, dealt with the very subject we're dealing with today. She studied uh, national and constitutional politics in 19th and 20th century Iran and Afghanistan. A lot of her forthcoming research is dealing specifically with non-Muslim communities during the constitutional revolution in Iran. So the subject of uh, non-Muslim communities, Sarhar, is uh, one that's very much intertwined with the subject of constitutional politics in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but when we say non-Muslim in the Ottoman context there's some slight differences between what we mean by non-Muslim in the Iranian context, both in terms of which groups there are and what the ramifications are for the political organization. So before we get into the heart of our discussion, would you mind just briefly outlining for our listeners uh, what communities we're talking about? We're saying non-Muslim groups in Iran at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, sure. Uh, I just want to say that I specifically talked about non-Muslims. So I didn't talk about other Muslim minority groups, mm-hmm. including Sufis and Sunnis, because Iran is a Shi majority. Yeah. So uh, I chose four main min- uh, minority groups, non-Muslim communities, uh, Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, and Babi Baha'i communities. Mm-hmm. So again, I didn't study some very small groups like Buddhists, Yazidis, and groups like this. And so one small difference, uh, I guess, between the case of Iran and the Ottoman Empire, uh, while the non-Muslim communities of the Ottoman Empire, are almost all of them are either Christian or Jewish, and, and there's exceptions, uh, but largely it's a question of other uh, peoples of the book, as we would call them, in quotes. Uh, in Iran, you also have other groups. You have Zoroastrians, uh, a pre-Islamic uh, religious group, and you also have Baha'is, which are a new uh, religious movement that's emerging in the 19th century, which is to say that uh, if the subject of non-Muslim uh, groups in, in Iran resembles the Ottoman case, it's in, in fact perhaps even more complex. Um, in fact, uh, in the very early movement of the Baha'ism and Babism, many of the Baha'is and Babis were exiled to the Ottoman mm-hmm. Empire from Iraq to Adrianople to 
two acre yeah. Aka, in modern day uh, Israel yes uh, so there existed a, a kind mm-hmm. of small Babi Baha'i community in the Ottoman Empire yeah, as well, true. but they were not as dominant as they were in Iran. Sure. They weren't they, a political yeah. group unto itself. Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, so uh, on that note, let's, let's uh, move right to the, the subject of the Constitution and the formation of the Parliament. Uh, and when, when getting into the discussion of how... Uh, non-Muslim groups were positioned vis-a-vis uh, this new order. I know in the Ottoman case, uh, Greeks, Armenians, Jews, uh, especially as the recent work of Bedros Dermatosian has, has shown, were very, very involved in the, the creation of the new Ottoman constitution and really welcomed that constitutional movement, seeing it as a potential chance for achieving political parity. Um, maybe you could discuss the case in Iran and, and compare. Was that similar? Was it, were there some differences there? I think it was the same situation because many non-Muslims were very hopeful about this movement and mm-hmm. they participated actively in the constitutional movement or revolution, mm-hmm. especially Christians or better to say Armenians from Iran or from the, you know, Russia. They, they were some, some of our, some Armenians from Russia came to Iran to support the constitutional oh, that's revolution. Very interesting. And, uh, on the other hand, Zoroastrians were very hopeful, so they helped as well. And Babis and some Baha'is uh, mm-hmm. supported this movement. Jews, I can say, they were uh, not as much as as much active as the other groups. But mm-hmm. because the main slogan of the Constitutional Revolution was Iran for all Iranians, so that mm-hmm. was for the first time the question of national identity rather than. Islamic identity. Right. And that's exactly the same as the Ottoman case, the, the, the creation of this Ottoman identity around the constitution to sort of flatten that religious landscape. Exactly, yes. So they try to participate actively in this movement mm-hmm. to improve it so they can have some rights as mm-hmm. well as their uh, fellow Muslim citizens. Yeah. That is how it worked. And and what's the intellectual? I mean, are are these people who support the revolution in, in Iran, whether whether um, Muslim or non-Muslim, uh, are they coming from particular uh, intellectual, educational training, particular professional back professional backgrounds? How would you characterize the demographics of the revolution? Yeah, talking about the revolution, if I say that there were some ideology behind the revolution, uh-huh. there might be some, you uh-huh. know. Uh, Oppositions against me because <laughs> I I mentioned it in my thesis and some uh, some members of the jury didn't like it. But right. I can I want to emphasize that this revolution had some ideology or some okay. theories at least, and the theor- theor- the theorists of this revolution were from the intellectuals educated either in European mm-hmm. universities coming back to Iran or educated in some modern schools in Iran uh-huh. by European system. Um, missionaries, system. for example. Missionaries, or even afterwards, uh, there, were, uh, there were some Iranian schools mm-hmm. following the same uh, pattern. Mm-hmm. So they were educated, they learned about European concept of democracy and French, in a special French revolution. They read the books and they translated it to Persian, so it was more accessible for mm-hmm. other um, citizens in Iran. And uh, the publication of newspaper was very... Oh, of uh, course, yeah. 
very helpful as well. So there were coffee houses in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. People were sitting, some people who could read, could read the journals or articles for uh, the others. So yeah. that is how the theory spreaded uh, all over the country. But the main features of this revolution were some very intellectual, special groups. And mainly, I can say many of them were Bobbies or better to say Azalis mm. who helped the revolution. Could you explain what Azali means for, for our listeners? Yes. Uh, First, the, the Bobby movement happened in mm-hmm. 1844, but when Sayyid Ali yeah. Muhammad Bob was executed in Tabriz, uh, there was a kind of disagreement be, about the, the successor of the Bob. So some group accepted Yahya Azal as the, okay. uh, the person after the Bob, so they were Azalis, uh-huh. and some followed Baha'u'llah. Yes, Baha'u'llah is the more internationally known today, yes, I think, of so the two. Baha'u'llah is the founder of Baha'ism, mm-hmm. so the, the followers are called Baha'is, uh, uh-huh. but the, the rest who didn't accept Baha'u'llah and followed Yahya Azal, who was half-brother of Baha'u'llah, actually, mm-hmm. uh, they are Azalis. During the late Qajar period, as I understand it, uh, Baha'is are persecuted very heavily. Uh, is this true for Azalis, too? Is there any difference there i'm trying uh, to understand let me let me explain two things yeah. one is that uh, even up to mm, the pahlavi period there was no distinction be- between these t- three groups uh-huh. when we were calling them so they were uh-huh. all called bobbies so that's a kind of difficult uh, job for a mm, historian right. to try to you know distinguish these three groups mm-hmm. they were all bobbies and even some other non-bahai bobby as alis were called Bobbies because of their very radical ideas. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, uh, because the Azalis practicing, were practicing taqiyyat, dissimulation, mm-hmm. so nobody could say they were Azalis. So, so they were more free, they were freer to go to different activities. Mm. Whereas Baha'is would, wouldn't do the taqiyyat or dissimulation, so they were recognized and... They were more discriminated. I mean, essentially, the Azalis are secret Baha'is. Secret the, uh, Bobbies or secret Azalis. Bobbies, yeah. oh, they were titled themselves Azalis in their uh-huh. own communities. Yeah, exactly. But outside the country, outside their communities, nobody would understand unless they were very famous. Now, we actually dealt with a similar phenomenon in the Ottoman Empire regarding Christians who, uh, in, in periods of... Uh, uh, this was a, a podcast with Zeynep Turkilmaz, uh, uh, Anatolian Christians who, in periods of um, relative political calm that f- that favored uh, religious uh, freedom, would declare their, that they were actually not Muslims, but they had been Christians that had been uh, sort of hiding their identity for safety. And you have these kind of moments of uh, crypto Christianity suddenly becoming a a uh, a public thing during the late 19th century with all sorts of fascinating socioeconomic consequences. Hi, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Dr. Sohar Sadarian about her research on non-Muslim communities uh, in Iran during the constitutional era of the turn of the 20th century, early early 20th century. So Sohar, I want to move to the topic of 
uh, non-Muslims in the Iranian parliament and moreover the, the way that non-Muslims were discussed in the Iranian parliament because as we're going to see, non-Muslims didn't necessarily have a lot of representation in the Iranian parliament. Um, in, in the paper you shared with me beforehand uh, for this podcast, you had a quote, um, you, you, you talk about the fact that this was uh, the constitution was a, a constitution for Iranians and not just for Muslims, but you said, uh, quote, the shadow of Islamic law was always over the parliament. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, this is a fact about Iranian society until now that this is a dualism of uh, decision, whether we want to uh, keep on the Islamic law, Sharia mm-hmm. or not, if we want equality of the rights of all citizens in Iran. That happened in the Constitutional Revolution and the Parliament as well. So when the Constitution happened, the main idea of the whole society was to uh, have equal rights for all citizens of the Mm -hmm. country. Whereas when it came to practice, again, that was a question of Sharia. So uh, there were mujtahids in the Parliament, so they were controlling all the decisions of Mm -hmm. the Parliament to make sure that uh, everything is according to Islamic law. And uh, as you read in my article, and uh, it is in history, the representatives of Christians and Jews were two great mujtahids in the parliament. So in the first part, the very first parliament, yes. and maybe we're going to have to talk about why there's two first parliaments, so to speak. But in the very first parliament, uh, Christians and Jews didn't actually have their own representative, but rather yeah. there was a, a Muslim cleric who was supposed to represent their interests. Yes. They they were told first that you are allowed to choose a representative to send uh-huh. it to the parliament, but we advise you not to do so because <laughs> it's in, endangered, you know, yeah. the, the, the benefit of the constitution. I don't know why, but that was, I suppose, a kind of threatening message sending yeah, to them. It's an so, interesting way of doing things. Yeah, they had even chosen who they were send, sending to the parliament, mm-hmm. but they had to withdraw. And then two great mujtahids, two big mujtahids, Tabo uh, Tabo and Behbahani, were sent to the parliament mm-hmm. instead of the representatives of the Christians and Jews. And it is important because they didn't go through the election at all. So mm-hmm. actually the, the situation injected to great mujtahids, Islamic mujtahids into the parliament without going through any other elections. So they were there without being elected. Mm. So this is somehow a very colorful presence of Islam in the mm-hmm. Parliament. And also, if you look at the members of the parliament in the first parliament, we just have one non-Muslim in the parliament, which was Arbab Jamshid, Jamshidian. Uh, and he was uh, he was there uh, with, you know, lots of efforts by the Zoroastrians bribing the members of the parliament in, on one hand. On the other hand, he was chosen or elected by the merchant mm-hmm. groups. So he was a very famous merchant, a very mm-hmm. rich merchant who was elected by the merchant community. Mm-hmm. And it's important to point out that like, what, 20% of the first Iranian parliament was merchants? Like yes. there was some kind of distribution, like X number of ulama, yes. X number of merchants. So merchants are very powerful in this Yes, parliament. they were. And uh, during the parliamentary discourse, uh, that is mentioned several times that 
Arbab Jamshid was a representative of the merchants in order to, you know, I can say calm the situation because afterwards uh, Christians and Jews wanted their right back. They mm. wanted to have a representative, yep. but it didn't happen. <laughs> First Parliament was uh, was closed by the force of the new Shah uh, because Muzaffaruddin Shah died some years, uh, some, okay. sorry, some months immediately after he, he signed the constitution. So his son and successor was not supporting the the constitution. So he tried to uh, to fight the, the Parliament and he closed it by bombarding by uh, by cannons. The, mm-hmm. the building of the parliament. So yeah. they closed it by force and a period of dictatorship started. That's a rough first parliament. But then yes. there's a second parliament. Yes. Yes. In the second parliament uh, was established uh, in 1908 mm-hmm. uh, while uh, a kind of civil war was happening in in Iran as well because uh, the country was divided between the constitutionalists and the royalists they were the one the ones who supported the new shah muhammad ali mm-hmm. shah there were civil wars in different parts of iran including the north of iran rasht close to the caspian sea uh, azerbaijan and tabriz and then uh, close to tehran in qazvin and tehran itself so there were uh, there were wars and uh, Finally, the constitutionalists were winning the war mm-hmm. when the Russian troops entered the country in 1912. Yeah. So, in so the second parliament was uh, between 1908 to 1911 that you know the war ended by somehow uh, the Russian ultimatum that they had to close the parliament. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's interesting to uh, now I understand you know the maybe you're familiar with Nader Sohrabi's work with comparing. Uh, uh, Iran and the Ottoman Empire during this constitutional period and throwing Russia in there as well. These three countries are experiencing uh, really similar processes, it sounds like. Um, so uh, so let's talk about the, the discourses surrounding non-Muslims in the second parliament, uh, which is longer and more extensive uh, than the first parliament, and in which non-Muslims have a little bit more um, representation than they had the first time. Yes. In the second parliament... Uh uh, um, Zoroastrians, Jews, and Christians had their own representatives. Mm. So for Zoroastrians, Arbab uh, Kehosro Shahrukh was elected. That was no problem for Zoroastrians. For Christians, they couldn't come to an, an agreement mm-hmm. who they are sending to the parliament. Sure. So that was a problem because when we say Christians, yeah. that includes Armenians, Assyrians, Orthodox. So there are lots of different churches as well as, uh, you know, the lack of information, for example, for Christians in the north of the ones in the south sure. or vice versa. So this big community, the whole big community had to decide about just one person and mm. they couldn't come to an agreement. They had two different representatives and finally they tr- they chose Mirza Yans, who, who went to the parliament, but actually he was the representatives of Armenians yeah. and not the whole Armenians because a part of the Armenian group chose 
uh, Yeprom Khan, who mm-hmm. couldn't go to the parliament. And for Jews, that was even worse because they couldn't come to an agreement. And this disagreement continued until the mid uh, meetings of the second parliament. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, uh, Jews didn't have a representatives in the second parliament until uh, half of the meetings of the parliament, the second parliament mm-hmm. had passed. Oh, wow. So yeah, so I mean that's that's interesting in and of itself that even this in this period of political contestation, of course, on the we could say the national level in Iran, you also have these kind of uh, jockeying that's going on within different segments of uh, society over sort of the, the political future uh, of of this new uh, constitutional uh, body. So Salvador, let's talk about how the political. Uh, concerns of non-Muslims are represented uh, in the parliament. And I want to ask about the sources, actually. Um, so for your research, as I understand it, you relied heavily on Lohe Mashruh, which is, uh, is this published minutes of the uh, Iranian parliament? Is that yeah, what it is? Yeah, it's exactly the same. It's uh, because at the time they were writing minutes of the parliament discourse mm-hmm. every day, which was called Ruznami Majlis at the time. Okay. And, Parliament Journal, and nowadays uh, that we are lucky that we have a DVD, searchable DVD of this oh, whole uh, too. yes yeah. minutes, including uh, Majlis Meli uh, uh, before the revolution and after the revolution, even mm-hmm. some minutes of the Islamic Revolution Parliament as well. Yeah, but, a lot of Ottoman historians don't know it, but actually the the minutes of the Ottoman Parliament are also online and searchable. Yeah. Uh, they've even been transcribed into modern Turkish for those who are listening. They might. Yeah. find that a useful resource yeah. for us the, the online you can find it online as well mm-hmm. but it it is not as good as the DVD yeah. there are some gaps and it's very slow so the DVD is nice you can search it but it didn't mean that I could easily you know type something find something and use it so it meant that I could find out some you yeah. know very important keywords so that I can follow all the discourse. So yeah. For me, I ha- that was that I had to read all the discourses during the first and the second parliament to find out what they are talking about and how non-Muslims are involved. So uh, are, are issues concerning non-Muslims uh, topics of big conversation in the parliament or are these kind of side issues that get discussed from time to time? They were important, but they were not... Uh, Central. Discussed a lot, yes. They were not central. And sometimes it is the issue of, you know, the very small case coming, you know, from a kind of petition, something from a city. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it was about a big decision to decide about the country. For example, they were deciding if they want to let non-Muslims to the army or military service uh-huh. or not. Yeah, that's a big issue. That is a big issue and it happened several sessions and there was a protest outside the parliament and for example, first they said that, you know, that is a kind of privilege for non-Muslims not to come to the military service. Mm-hmm. Instead, they should pay to this Who's saying this? This is the... Which, which party is saying this? This, uh, this is the kind of conservative religious, Islamic right. religious right. Uh, members of the parliament, including Modaris at the time. Yeah. So he, he said that you should pay, but you're not welcome. Right. And then when, because the, the conversation uh, developed a little bit 
against it. So they said, of course, Zoroastrians are, you know, all our brothers. They were there even before us somehow to say (laughs) (laughs) they are Iranians, so they are welcome. So then Zoroastrians, the Christians and Jews tried to uh, Uh. protest. Why not us? And then there were protests outside the parliament. So they tried to change their the way they in, actually they uh, argued, but the result was the same. So they said that is just a privilege for them not to be in the military yeah. service. But finally, the decision was that we are not accepting non-Muslims. And presumably the- they didn't want like Christians, like Armenian political groups and whatnot to be armed. Exactly. That was the idea, right? I mean, it's very interesting. It's a very confusing discussion in the Ottoman Empire as well. Throughout the history of the Ottoman Empire, you have people always trying to avoid being in the army, always trying to avoid serving in the military. Muslims trying to avoid this. And, you know, they're complaining that Christians don't have to do it and they're getting benefits from that. Uh, And then, uh, of course, on the political level, on the national level or the empire wide level, when we're talking, it's always that Christians are asking to be in the military and that the you know, sort of imperial leadership is saying, no, 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 we can't have that. So there's an interesting paradox going on there. Yeah. Of and people want, wanting very badly a privilege that people also very much don't want to have, which exactly. is to fight in the military. It's ironic in a way because actually Armenian army was very important in the constitutional revolution. And they supported the revolution. They fought. Right. And even during the civil war and they helped the revolution to win. And afterwards, in the end, right. they are not allowed to be in the military service. Right. These uh, paramilitary groups from, from coming from Russia, you said, played an yes. important role yes. in the establishment of the Constitution. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. so what are some of the other ways in which the, the concerns of non-Muslims come up uh, in that second Iranian parliament between the years of 1908 and 1911? What are some of the other context within which the non-Muslim community, communities of Iran are invoked? There are some important decisions that I believe very important. Some of them happened outside the conversations in the parliament. Hmm. For example, one decision about that was inside the parliament was that from now, now on, I mean, from the second parliament on, they decided to uh, name a uh, the Jewish community as the Yahudi and Kalimi instead of Jehud, which was a kind of insult to this mm. community. So that shows a kind of respect coming up to this, uh, to Jew com- to Jewish community. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there were some decisions uh, like um, that, that happened. I couldn't find it in the parliamentary discourse, but I found a letter uh, in the uh, Foreign Affairs Archives in Iran the decision was in the second parliament. The letter was from that, but I couldn't mm-hmm. find it in the parliament discourse. That uh, they decided that all the juridical cases of non-Muslims would go back to the great court of Iran or, you know, the, the judge, the juridical system of Iran. Mm-hmm. Whereas beforehand, there was a special department in the foreign affairs, uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that would 
deal with the cases of non-Muslims, mm-hmm. which, which, which was called Edareya Melale Mutenave, which is exactly the department of different people <laughs> yeah. somehow Various dealing, people. yeah, <laughs> somehow dealing with these people as foreigners because uh-huh. that was a part of foreign affairs ministers, ministry of foreign affairs, uh, and they would rather to go, they would rather go to this. Uh, department, the non-Muslims themselves, because if they would go to the court of Sharia, they were not equal, as equal as the Muslims, and that was not uh, in favor of them. So after the revolution, uh, the parliament decided that all citizens of Iran should be dealt equally, and Mm -hmm. they are going to the court. that doesn't mean that it happened and they were dealt, they were treated equally, but at least that was a decision mm-hmm. like this, that this is not a part of Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They are not foreigners. They are Iranians, so they are going to be judged yeah. in the Iranian court. Interesting. Uh, I mean, one of the other questions I wanted to ask was about the politics of discussions of uh, non-muslims in the parliament uh because as you said there's 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 a there's a bigger political struggle going on in iran between the the loyalists the royalists and uh the constitutionalists right so i mean you had mentioned for example that bobbies or, or azalis at least uh were big allies and big uh, supporters of of the original constitutional movement um do we see uh certain ways in which their their political interests or concerns are concerns are represented in the parliament by virtue of the fact that they are so important to this uh, threatened movement. First of all, I need to say that uh, when they wanted to decide who is coming to the parliament, they put some regulation to avoid Bobbies and Baha'is to come to the parliament by saying that the person, the member of the parliament should be either a Muslim or someone who believes in the recognized religions or mm-hmm. Ahle Kitab, Zoroastrians, Jews, and Christians. Okay. So Babis and Baha'is were not allowed to come to the parliament. There are some rumors about the presence of Azalis in the parliament right. because we, we don't know if there were Azalis or not, but we cannot prove it either. Uh, but Something very obvious is that we had a Baha'i member in the first and second parliament and even afterwards that was a prince of Qajar, Mirza Abul Ghassim Khan Sheikh Rais, who was a great mujtahid as well and who was a Baha'i as well. But uh, he... He was not known as a Baha'i. He was known as a great mujtahid and a prince of Qajar. And he received several letters by the leader of the Baha'is, Abdul Baha. Mm-hmm. And he went to visit Abdul Baha, actually. And uh, Abdul Baha encouraged the Baha'is not to bring his name up so that he can be there and serve the Baha'i community. Uh, so he was there. He was there. And, there yeah, and he, talked, he talked a lot, I can say. I checked it. He talked <laughs> in all sessions and yeah. he was very active and... He tried to bring up some points. In some points, he was he was supportive to the ideas of the Baha'ism. For example, he was very uh, supportive of the education, sending students to the mm-hmm. European countries to study, and he emphasized on the case of Ma'arif knowledge. Mm-hmm. And in a case, somehow he exactly quoted what uh, was uh, what. 
he exactly quoted what Abdul Baha said. Mm. So oh, he wow. supported that. But in, a, in another case, surprisingly, he was saying something that is against the Baha'i principles. For example, he said that if you don't beat a child, he never learns. So this is not <laughs> something Baha'i uh, education mentions. Yeah. So, but in general ideas uh, that he brought up were somehow supporting to the Baha'i community, but he was not a representative of the Baha'is. He was just there as the representatives of a city. So for Baha'is and Babis and Azalis, they never entered the parliament except this Sheikh Orais, mm-hmm. and they were never mentioned as citizens in the mm. parliamentary discourses unless they were talking about some convictions that this person is, you know, uh, teaching Baha'ism in a city. So some, people's, some people wrote a kind of petition against him or something mm. like this. But normally when the, it's a case of Baha'is, if it, even it, if it is mentioned, it goes on with a silence. So nobody mm. continues the discourse. Interesting. Okay, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I want to remind those who are listening uh, that if they're interested in learning more about this, our topic today, we have a bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can also get access to other episodes uh, relevant to this topic, as well as a wide array of discussions regarding uh, the Ottoman Empire, the modern Middle East, uh, and beyond. Uh, Dr. Saldarian, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast today and, and actually being our first guest to deal uh, solely with the, the history of Iran uh, in a podcast interview. That was my pleasure as well. It was, it was very enlightening for me as someone who's quite familiar with the similar historical context in the Ottoman Empire, but I, I'd never really read that closely on the case in Iran uh, just to you know, see how similar it is, and also I think for our listeners, it's 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 fascinating to hear about uh, the role of, of non-Muslims in Iran. Oftentimes, people forget there are non-Muslims uh, in Iran in the history of Iran, but of course, that's not the case. Uh, so it's it's been a great uh, conversation and uh, a great contribution to our project. Uh, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. Remind them to uh, check us out on uh, Facebook, where we have over 20,000 followers engaging in uh, various conversations uh, and following our latest content. I also really recommend you check out the uh, Ajem Media Collective uh, Facebook group, which is very active posting and always posting really interesting content from their own site and others. Uh, relevant not just to the Persian world, but really a lot of conversations uh, in the modern world about politics, uh, identity, uh, and and such issues. That's all for this episode of Ottoman History Podcast. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Join us next time. And until then, take care. <laughs>